We are thrilled, Melissa Hart, my co-host um, and instructor in the MFA, which I, who I'm sure many of you have had or will have. And um, uh, so we are both thrilled to be um, to have with us tonight uh, another uh, awesome MFA uh, instructor, uh, and that is uh, Eileen Rendell. Uh, unfortunately, Eileen <laughs> is experiencing technical difficulties, and we can um, uh, her camera is not working. So we can still hear her, I hope, and she can hear us. Um, Eileen, are are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Excellent. Um, so I want to uh, introduce Eileen a little bit. Eileen is a ghostwriter and a national best-selling and award-winning author of mystery, thriller, urban fantasy, science fiction, and romance. She has also written as Christy Abbott, Lillian Bell, and Eileen Carr, as well as a few other names she can't tell you about. If you think you're confused, imagine what it's like inside her head. So Eileen, I'm going to start there. Um, you've written under a, a number of different uh, different names, as well as as uh, ghost written for for people whose names, no doubt, we would all recognize. So um, can you distinguish between those two types of writing, writing where you use a pseudonym and then ghost writing? Well, actually, I would throw a third category in there too. So. Um, when I started publishing, I was writing chiclet novels, you know, kind of contemporary romantic comedies. They were light, they were funny, they were about, you know, women talking and eating and dating. And uh, then um, I wrote this other book that was kind of a more gritty psychological thriller. And my editor really liked it, but she said, Anybody who sees Eileen Rendall's name now is going to pick it up expecting mm -hmm. shoes, shopping, and boys. And instead, we have um, children in danger and blood on the walls. I think you should use a pseudonym for this. And it, you, know, you can be open about it, it being your pseudonym. So that was the, my first foray into another name. Mm -hmm. Then um, I had been writing a, an urban fantasy series for uh, Berkeley Publishing. And after about three books, they said, eh, numbers aren't kind of good enough to keep this one going. And my editor at the time said, oh, you know, I'll miss you so much. I love working with you. Well, we have to find another project. And I thought it was kind of one of those New York, you know, air kiss, let's have lunch things. But about a month later, she called and asked me if I'd ever done a house owned series. And I didn't even know what she was talking about. And uh, you'll also hear them called IP intellectual property projects. So the publishing house basically had a concept that they wanted written and they were hiring me to write it. So I don't own the intellectual property. And that would mean that they would also own the name of whoever was, you know, right. listed as the author. So none of us wanted <laughs> them to own my name. Um, so we picked a, a pseudonym for that one. So I've been writing those for a little bit and um, then, you know, it's one of those like publishing things. It's like, well, somebody contacted my old agent to see if she had anybody who did IP projects. She didn't, but she said, oh, but you know, my old person who I'm still in touch with, she, I know she's doing one, talk to her. So then I ended up with a second IP project at a different publishing house with yet another name. 
<laughs> now, are all are all these going on? This reminds me of like that old Ian Hunter al- uh, album, "You're Never Alone with a Schizophrenic." <laughs> it felt that way sometimes, and I never could decide like what was the best. Like, there was one period of time where I had uh, a, a thriller mystery coming out, and like a darker one, and then also a cozy mystery coming out like within like a month or so of each other and you know trying to juggle the copy edits and page proofs for all that and going back and forth through such different tones was kind of challenging but then later I had two cozy mysteries under two different names coming out very close together and I was doing the same juggling act but it was also really confusing because the tone was so similar I, I started having trouble like who lives in what world Right. And, <laughs> and what's the weather like? <laughs> so I wasn't sure which was easier or harder on those ones, but it was all interesting challenges. And it's it's really <laughs> it's really kind of incredible. So um, how how do you? I'm going to get more into the ghostwriting side of things in a minute, but how how, how do you kind of keep your um, how do you how do you keep your your own voice, the Eileen Rendall voice, distinct? Um, and I'm sorry, hold on one second. Somebody has their mic on, and I'd appreciate it if you could turn it off. It is Elizabeth. Sorry, Elizabeth, I, I muted you. Whoops, I'm going to be. Oh, there we go. Go ahead, Ali. <laughs> so, the question of voice is such an interesting one because different projects just require a different voice. I think that um, I always kind of end up somewhere with something a little bit sarcastic. And even if it's a dark book, there's some humor to it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of like that core little thing I hang on to that's still me. Um, I really admire people who can absolutely like subsume their own voice. Um, I'm blanking now that the woman who wrote Room, um, if you've read any of her... I don't remember that person's name, but I know I know who you mean. She's incredible. From one book to the next, you would never even know it was the same person writing. She so completely inhabits the characters that she's whose point of view she's writing from. And I actually really admire that. I wish I could do that better. Um, I think I do it on kind of a minor level, <laughs> but I, I think it's a really good skill for an author to, to have to be able to get out of their own heads, their own voice, and and into yep. another one. One one of our one of our uh, audience members, Tim Pipkin, I, has identified her as Emma Donahue. Oh, there we yeah. go. Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Melissa, do you 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 do fiction and you also write a lot of journalism? Ha, ha, do you have a this a similar issue with keeping uh, keeping your own voice distinct? In journalistic, you know, pure journalistic reporting articles, I have to write to this, the tone and style of the magazine or newspaper. If it's a, if it's a literary essay, then I can write in the same tone as I write in my books. But then I also write books for both young adults and adults. And Mm -hmm. so I have to have two separate voices there. Yeah. It's a lot of juggling, for sure. It it is juggling. Well, I mean, that's why you know, voice is such an important part of um, 
of uh, a writer's toolbox. And a lot of times, I know a lot of students are are often um, worried or or interested in like developing their own unique voice. And and they're sometimes concerned. Well, I don't have a voice. When am I going to have one? How do I get one? And in 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 some respects, I I mean, I always feel like, well, your voice will emerge naturally over time. But one thing that you and and Eileen are both pointing out is that a writer really needs to have command of a multitude of voices. Absolutely. But it does start with finding your own. I mean, when I look back on like this whole experience of you know, the last however many years I've been um, writing professionally, um, everything started from finding that voice that felt natural to me. Yeah. Um, how, how did you find your voice? How did you how did you recognize it as, oh, this is my voice? I think somebody else, the other people kind of found it for me. I did, um, Bridget Jones' diary came out in the United States in probably late 90s, I think. And I think three different people either called me or sent me a copy of the book and said, this sounds just like you, but with a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, huh, I didn't know we were allowed to write like that. I didn't know that was uh. a thing that we, we got to do. And when I got to relax into that, and I remember the first time I started writing in first person, I felt like I was walking on like a tightrope. It was like, oh my God, the only thing I can talk about is what this one character can see and hear and yeah. smell and taste. Oh my God. And it, but it was kind of thrilling at the same time. And I think that's really, when I relaxed into that, that's when I find my voice. And once I got that and understood what it felt like, I think that's when I could start like looking at trying on other voices and other personas. That's that's interesting because I remember when I was um, just starting out as a writer and I was in at the Clarion Writing Workshop, uh, which I attended right after graduation. Um, I was under the influence of many writers, chief among them Samuel R. Delaney, and all my stuff was like basically ripping him off uh, until finally I wrote one thing and one of my instructors pointed to a paragraph in that and said, that's you. That's oh, your wow. voice. And and I studied that paragraph for a long time to try to understand what he meant. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, my career has been that's the North Star for everything that I've written since, even though the subject matter has been very different. But the kind of the tone that he um, that he uh, opened my eyes to in that paragraph is something that I pursued ever since. So I think sometimes it does take kind of an objective out outside uh, viewpoint to to make that known. Well, we get so wrapped up into in the little details of what we're doing in the you know we get down there in the weeds. It's hard to get that big overall view where you see oh this is what's working here and this is this is what isn't working here. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's one of the great things about the workshops that we do is you know there's somebody outside of you looking at your work who understands what it means to write and saying okay, see what you did here? This is great. Do more of that. <laughs> right, right. Um, I'm going to uh, raise a, a question that uh, another one of our guests has has asked, which is a technical question. Um, this person wants to know, what is more important, my voice, my character's voices, or story structure? I think it just depends on what you're writing a lot. I mean, if you're writing literary fiction, I would say it is your character's voice that matters. 
because so much of literary fiction is that sort of deep dive into a person and what it means what it means to be that person. Um, I think that if you're writing a mystery, you might need to have more story structure in there. Although I have some very successful friends who do not plot and stuff just comes flying out however it flies out. <laughs> But that's true. I mean, some genres are more are more uh, they're they're they, they lend themselves to certain structures, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And when you like so I've written some romance as well. And then you've got two characters who are both your protagonists. And then that's two voices that you have to keep distinct. And I think the most successful romances those two characters have completely separate voices because they have different worldviews and it and maybe the author has a way of approaching things that makes it uniquely theirs but you're trying to get into those two characters heads and see the world through them so right. their voices are the ones that matter but i mean let's say that you're writing something like that from an omniscient point of view then you have an omniscient narrator and the omniscient narrator's voice is going to be the predominant voice in the novel even though the nar omniscient narrator may delve into or or um present to us the the voices of the various characters in different ways um in dialogue internal monologue or whatever but but um uh in in that sense i think you can you can you can still gain access to those other characters um, through another voice, I guess. But then, so if you, I don't I don't much care for romances written in omniscient viewpoint. Yeah, I, 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 I was just there's not that using, many of them either. But but I do see what you mean. And actually, I just I'm usually not a huge fan of of an omniscient narrator, but I just read two books recently where they it was handled so beautifully. Um, that one was called uh, The Mountain and the Sea by Jared Naylor. And he shifted, there were, there were shifts in point of view that I didn't even notice they'd happened until I was like at the end of the scene and went, wait a minute, I know what everybody was thinking. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the other one was um, Lessons of Chemistry. But in both of those cases, some you were taking that umbrella view of the situation and while you had access to what people were thinking and feeling it really was that omniscient narrator's story that they were telling you so yeah. then that's the voice yeah um so let me circle back to um ghostwriting um because i i know that uh, a lot of our uh guests tonight are interested in that and i am too um, so tell us about how that part of your career got started and talk to us a little bit about like, what is ghostwriting and what does it entail? What are the positives? What are the negatives in terms of like a viable career path for a writer? So I, I sort of got into it maybe kind of half backwards, but um, I was actually looking to do more developmental editing. and. Um, I had had a part-time job that was going away and I needed to replace that income relatively quickly. And I talked to some friends who did developmental editing and they said, oh, you know, sign up on these websites and see what happens. Well, one of them, I couldn't sign up as a developmental editor because I couldn't point to enough books that I had um, edited that were published. 
but they said, but you've written these other things under other names. And basically mm. that's, you know, pretty close to ghostwriting. You can sign up as a ghostwriter. Mm. And honestly, I was inundated with people asking, you know, contacting me to find out about working for them. And uh, that was actually one of the things that I really had to learn is to not panic and try to chase every job. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because the freelance life is is so so much a case of feast or famine, and you know you you never you never know. It takes a it takes a long time to get out of the mentality of like I've got to take this job. Yeah, and even then when you're traditionally published, you know, I I certainly hit that point a couple times where it was like I I don't want to say no to these people because this may never come around again, and right. then you end up in a place where you're juggling too much, which is not a pretty place to be either. Right. Um, That's why it never comes around again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, in terms of so that's how I got into it, and I get a lot of different kinds of queries. So I get, um, one of the first people I worked for um, was a published author, traditionally published, um, who had bitten off more than she could chew, I think. And she was hit this dry spell and the book was written. It just needed to be cleaned up. Okay. So, so that really was, was almost like developmental editing. It was, that's exactly how I felt about it. It was like doing a developmental edit, except for in telling, telling her what to do. I just did it myself, yeah, which sometimes yeah. is even easier. Right. Um, but then I've also gotten things where there's um, just an outline that I'm working from. And uh, sometimes there's also, I've had a couple things where somebody has started writing something and they just, they don't know what, they don't know, they know it's not good, but they don't know why. Right. So I may get sort of like the first chapter or two and notes and an outline to go forward on. Um, yeah, it, I've, I've I've done I've done some ghostwriting as well. I'm I'm not by no means as accomplished in that in that realm as as you are, but um, I have to I have written a few novels that are that ghostwritten that were. That were published and they, they came to me. I signed up for an organization that was specifically, you know, about ghostwriting. And um, the times I've done it, writers have come to me or the originators or the creators, whatever, have come to me with an idea. And then I created an outline and they approved it. And then I just wrote the book. Um, and I have to say, it, it was a it was a interesting experience. Um, the times that I've done it, and especially the first time, uh, because I approached it just as I would any book of my own, which I think was a mistake, uh, because I was so emotionally invested in it, and I just poured everything I had into it, like I would have done for any book, uh, except it wasn't my book. So talk, can you talk talk a little bit about about that kind of strange separation of of like. Uh, investment and ownership when it comes to your ghost ghost written work. So there was a project that I did one of one of the first ones that I that I did where um, it was like a fantasy romance kind of thing, and I did get really attached to these characters, and I I I just like you said, like as if it was 
a book that I had come up with organically on my own. I felt strongly about them. I felt strongly about their relationship and what it meant. And, and, but in the way the actual author <laughs> wanted the story to go, had the hero of the story doing something that I felt was unforgivable. Yeah. And so the second you do that, A, it's no longer a romance. And B, it's like, well, if I was a reader, I'd throw the book across the room and never finish it once I hit that point because I would be so angry that the, that this person that I had trusted <laughs> had done something so heinous. And um, she really wanted it written that way. And I kept saying, well, what about, we could do this or we could do this or we could do that, trying to find all these ways around it. And she really wanted it written that way. And I kind of did and kind of didn't. I, you know, found an excuse where he didn't really know what he'd done. And, uh, but it was really, really hard to write it because I knew it wasn't the right thing to have happen. Yeah. And there were other options. Yeah. And I did get very wound up about it. And then it was like, why on earth am I getting this wound up about it? <laughs> well, it's, it's because, you know, the, you know, you're 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 a creative person and you're it's not just a switch that you can, th you know, throw off and on. I don't think I think that writers pour so much of their own, you know, of their deepest aspirations and selves into their writing, regardless of whether it's ghostwriting or or not, because that's what they're hiring. You know, that's what the, the people are hiring from a ghostwriter. That's they're not just hiring somebody who's technically adept, although they want that, obviously they want somebody who knows how to tell a good story and is, is going to do so if effectively, but they're also looking for somebody that can make a connection with readers. And that's how you make a connection with readers, isn't it? You, you like expose parts of yourself and put them into, into whatever you're writing. I think there was also an element of that teaching thing, you know, where it was like, here, let me explain to you why, this doesn't work here yeah and then to have the person just say nope it was like yeah. but, but wait i just explained it so beautifully <laughs> to you why would you not listen <laughs> so so um and then what about other aspects and and uh, i see that we have a couple of questions in the chat and i want to assure uh people that i will get we will get to those questions um what what about the financial aspects of it and the sort of the contractual aspects of of ghostwriting can you talk about that a little well, bit? One of the trickiest things for me has been the scheduling aspect of it. You know, we we talked earlier about overscheduling yourself. You never want to say no. And I've had to learn to say no or say, this sounds like a great project. I can get to it six months from now. Right. So that's been hard. Um, for most of the books that I've written, um, I charge per word. And usually it ends up being relatively close to what I might get for an advance okay. on another book. Um, there have been a couple people who have asked me to write basically on spec and saying, well, you'll get a portion of the royalties. And I'm like, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, no. <laughs> I have been around this block a few too many times. Um, and then sometimes when, those people are very offended when you say no. You know, how can you yeah. how can you turn down this golden ticket? <laughs> I know it's just like, it's easily, very easily. I can turn it down and not lose much sleep. Um, but one of the things that 
I don't think I fully realized before when I first started doing it is that um, there's a lot of expenses when you are an author of, you know, promoting your books and going places to give talks and buying advertising and, you know, keeping your mailing list up. And suddenly with ghostwriting, that's none of that's my responsibility anymore. Right. So I, I don't have, you know, I don't have to mentally be subtracting that from like, well, you know, I'm going to get this much for this book for this year. And then I have to spend this much of it on this other stuff. Um, and even, I mean, especially I think if you're um, self-published, I think one of my friends who is, does quite well with self-publishing, half of what she makes goes right back into publicizing the book. Right. So you have to be ready for that. Um, as a, as a ghostwriter, do you have, um, do you ever have contracts that, that give you a portion of royalties? Not yet. No. And um, I have one right now I have one client cause they, they, they wanted five books. So I was like, well, that's pretty nice because then you have, you know, that security for a few months mm -hmm. that we were talking about with freelancing. Um, and I know this, but you know, it's, it's been very funny because that's been one of the ones where like I've signed an NDA, I think two NDAs with them. And uh, so I only figured out who the name the books were coming out under kind of by a little, you know, internet sleuthing of my own. Yeah. They've never, they've never told me. <laughs> and uh, so it, it's been kind of funny to watch what's happening with those books, like as they go up on Amazon and stuff. Um, but, but no, they haven't offered me royalties and I'm not sure how I would feel about it. Um, it's been, it's been a really interesting process because this is with a, a an agency. They're essentially a book packager. Right. And um, so they're a little more professional, but then we also, so the problem is that when I'm, when I don't like something, I'm like, I don't feel like this outline makes sense right here. And they're like, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but wait, <laughs> so that sometimes that gets a little challenging because it's like, okay, okay, I, I don't like the way this plot is assembled, but I'm going to have to stick with it the way it is and, and have it look like I loved it anyway. Right. Well, that's that's one of the sacrifices that you that you have to make. I have a question. Yep. Go ahead. Eileen, are, do you have the bandwidth to work on your own novels while you're ghostwriting somebody else's novel? Great question. I have um, and it's been kind of interesting. It's um, because it feels very weird sometimes. I, you know, I, my first book came out in 2004. And since that time, I've had a novel under a name that I could at least say was mine <laughs> pretty much every year. And mm -hmm. then suddenly, like, I don't have a book out under my own name. And when you know, uh, when you go to conferences or you give a talk someplace, the last question is always, what do you have coming out? And I can't tell you. <laughs> and it feels very weird and very strange and uncomfortable. And I keep saying that it's like, um, I do, I do have a boyfriend. He just goes to a different <laughs> high school. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Jan. <laughs> 
exactly. <laughs> so I, that always feels a little bit weird. Now I've lost track of where I started on this question about, oh, working on my own stuff. Every once in a while lately, I'll, I'll get an idea and I'll think, oh, that would be fun to play with. I could twist that around this way or that. And then I'm just like, and when are you going to do that? Yeah. When are you going to get to that? And so I keep saying, you know, just set it aside. And I think what might happen is that when I get one of those ideas that's really sticky, you know, the ones that like you keep thinking about it, you think about it once and you say, no, 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 put it aside. And then like you wake up thinking about it or while you're doing the dishes, it pops in your head. <laughs> I think one of those is going to happen. And then I'll, I'll find a way to write my own stuff as well as, as right. ghost writing. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Melissa, do you want to? Do you want to grab some questions from the lots of questions? Yeah. So let's see. Is ghostwriting profitable? Does it pay the bills? For me right now, the combination of ghostwriting and teaching is paying the bills. Okay. Um and <laughs> which, you know, as an author, as a trying to write professionally is a pretty good feeling once you, you know, if you know that you're gonna be able to like cover the mortgage the way you need to. Yep. Um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I'm rolling in dough, but I'm, <laughs> I'm keeping my head head above water. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, a lot, that's more than a lot of writers can say, unfortunately. Yeah. And Karen also wants to know, are you sworn to a non-disclosure agreement? Um, not always, okay. um, but I I have found that the more the more in the actual industry the person hiring me is, the more likely I will have an NDA. Right. And does it does an NDA correlate to a, a higher rate of pay for the for the project in your experience? Not at this point. I mean, the the, the agency that I'm doing the five book contract with, um, I actually took a little less per book than I normally would just because mm -hmm. of that nice stability that I, that yep. I was going to have. Yep. Um, does uh, does an agency like that also take a cut? Oh, I mean, it's. It's their book. I mean, I have, I have learned through my internet sleuthing that I am not, I'm not the only person writing for them under a pen name. They've got a yep. few things going, so it's been kind of interesting. I think I've gotten almost to the point where, like, if I see a description of one of their books, I can go, oh, I bet it's going to be them. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to go back kind of to an earlier question that we had, um, which is a kind of a, a craft question. Um, how do you balance show, don't tell when writing in first person? So I always think about first person as it's, you're going really deep into point of view. So really, essentially, everything is shown because you're experiencing it in that moment with that character. Right. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're smelling what I smell. You're hearing what I'm hearing. You're seeing what I'm seeing as I am seeing it. And, you know, it's all showing. Yeah. And yeah. You, you do have to balance that out a little bit here and there. It's like, I don't really feel a need to like, ex, you know, you don't have to be with the character in the car ride from one place to another. <laughs> you can just kind of get there. But, but I do feel it's a lot more showing than telling just by the nature of the point of view. Mm -hmm. I will say the one thing that I still have not really, I feel like I 
I feel I still struggle with writing in point of view is how to describe the character whose point of view you're talking from. Because I, you don't want to do the look in the mirror and describe no. yourself. Uh -uh. <laughs> <laughs> so that is one that I actually still really, it's like every time I'm like, how am I going to let people know what she looks like? Right. <laughs> Right. And you, even if you figure it, figure it out for one book, you don't want to repeat yourself in another book. No, you have to find new ways each time. It's very it's that that's my biggest challenge with with first person, I think. And there's such a good question that just came up. Are you creating the story yourself? Is somebody else creating the story and you're writing it? I know you addressed that a little bit. Um, Kenzie elaborates if it's someone else creating the story. I love this. How do you keep yourself from running away with that idea? Oh, well, I, you know, <laughs> when I was describing that romance where I, yeah. the, the hero did something very unheroic, I was, um, <sighs> it was very hard to keep myself from running away with it. Um, so for the ones that I'm writing right now, because the outline is very clear and chapter by chapter, you know, I can, I can put in a few things, but I have, I don't have room to run away with it too much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm constrained by that. Um, I have another project that has been coming and going for a while. Like the, the, the woman who hired me, like she'll be on it for a while and then she'll kind of disappear and I won't get information that I need or whatever. And it kind of goes by the wayside. But her story, um, I totally ran away with, not intending to at all. It just like, kind of took off on its own. She didn't have, she, she wants to take something that happened to her in real life and turn it into fiction, but she doesn't want it to be too close to her life because it, it involves her family and not everybody comes out looking so good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, when we were playing with fictionalizing it, I went off on this tear and it is so different than what we started with. And then, but she, in that case, she was happy with it. So it was one of those things where I wrote, I want to say a chapter, but it may have been even just a few scenes that I sent to her and, and said, okay, this is where I'm thinking of going. Are you comfortable with this? And we found our way together on that one. So, I mean, that kind of ghostwriting is, is very much a collaborative effort. Um, even though, you know, one person is, is clearly in, more in charge than the other just by the circumstances. But, um, there are there are other forms of more co-equal collaboration. Have have you written any books that way? No, I haven't. And you know, I think it would be really fun to do that because I really do find the collaborative part of it kind of groovy. I mean, it was one of the things when I was getting my MFA that I loved the workshops because I was lucky that um, the workshops I were was in they were all very positive and you know upbeat there wasn't we didn't have any like nightmare scenarios and it really did feel like I was there with this group of people who were just trying to help me make the best story that I could out of this idea and it it got very exciting and I felt and you know I can't think of everything I think it's a I think it's really fun oh gosh we got a lot of questions we do we suddenly we got a, a, a flood of questions coming in so how about this one uh what has been your career path in ghostwriting? You talked about this a bit. 
how do you recommend that people in this room right now begin as a ghostwriter? So I was thinking about this before we started tonight, you know, it was like, because when I would come to presentations like this before I was published or even, you know, even still, if I'm still looking for work is um, like, so how do I, how do I get this work? Yeah. Um, and for me, I know that doors opened because I was already traditionally published and not everybody's going to get to do that. Um, I have gotten quite a bit of work through a site called Upwork mm -hmm. and it's, you don't have to have any, you don't have to prove anything about yourself to sign up, <laughs> which is both good and bad, I think. But, um, but through there, you can start getting a set of clients that you've written for and at a and some of those ones you have to watch out because I've gotten some really low ball offers on some of those. It's like, no, I, I, they want it fast and they want it cheap. And I just, I'm too old. I can't do that <laughs> <laughs> anymore. And, uh, but if you're looking for a way to get your foot in the door, I think it might be a good place to start. And there's other places like, you know, Upwork and Fiverr and all kinds of things, places like that. Um, it, you get your foot in your, the door, you get some credentials, and then you can keep building on that. And that would be my suggestion. Um, if you, the more you have published, the more um, credibility you have. So I think that makes it easier to get the work. So even if you're just working, you know, short stories don't pay. In my personal experience, <laughs> they, you know, you don't make a lot of money off of them, but it is a publishing credit. And it's also a piece of work that you can send to people and say, oh, if you wanna see my work, this is what I do. So I would put some energy into making sure that you're working on those short stories and getting them submitted places. Yep, and I'll, I'll remind our students that submitting a short story is, is one of the requirements for graduating. <laughs> <laughs> so you might as well, might as well get, get at it. <laughs> Let's see. Um, Elizabeth says, I thought you had to be a low bidder on assignment for Upwork and Fiverr seems the better option. I think, do you have a preference for one over the other? So I haven't worked in Fiverr. Um, okay. Basically what happened is I signed up on Upwork and I signed up on Readsy and I already had more work than I could handle. So I didn't experiment with any of the other sites. With Upwork, it's not necessarily that you have to be the low offer. Um, they may want to take the low offer, but you um, you just have to be the offer they want. And, uh, and on Upwork, I sort of lucked out, or I don't know if it's luck or what it is, but um, the first client that I got through there, um, I didn't I didn't go looking for her work to bid on it. I think she saw my profile and approached me. And that's how Upwork has worked for me. I get, you know, once you do a certain amount of work for them, it was, you know, I made enough money on that one that it popped me up to their next level. Mm. And now I get invitations to apply for jobs and I can kind of pick and choose what I might want to apply for through that. And Mary has such a good question. What are some of the reasons you've turned down a project other than not having the bandwidth? 
Um, sometimes it's something that I don't think I have the right voice for. Um, sometimes there's a plot element that I find objectionable. Um, there was one where like, it was all about the main characters, like big skill was torturing people. And I mm. was like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to live there for however long it takes to write that book. I just, I'm not your person. <laughs> um, the other things are, sometimes I look at it and I'm like, you're not ready. Like the book is just not ready for, for someone to come in and start writing. You, I, and that was something that I, I have learned maybe the hard way with this is like, I want them to be at a certain point before I start taking on the project. Yeah. Otherwise there's just too much back work to do. Yeah. I, I found that with my, with my back when I was doing a lot of developmental editing and, and line editing on a freelance basis, I came to the conclusion ultimately that I had to impose that kind of cutoff as well that, you know, that because so many projects were just not ready for an editor. Yeah, and, and they don't necessarily, I mean, we're all learning, right? So they don't necessarily know that before somebody says, hey, <laughs> come back to me when you've done this work now. Right. And it's not necessarily a uh, criticism of the, you know, of the idea. It's it's mainly that the execution is not at the stage that it needs to be to benefit from the services of a editor or a ghostwriter. Yeah, exactly. Hey, can you speak just a little more, Eileen, on how you blend your voice with the the OG writer's voice? I think one of the things that does happen is, you know, people who want to hire me, you know, usually if they approach me, I'll, I'll send them a sample of my work. I'll send them a PDF of one of my novels or a short story, whatever I feel kind of matches a little bit what they're doing. So one of the, one of the reasons they're hiring me is because my voice does mesh with them. So there's not, we're not fighting quite so much over yeah. how it should sound and, and how they, what their kind of worldview is. Mm -hmm. Eileen, we had another question from uh, Tamara who, who wants to know, going back to the conversation we were just having, um, how, how do you identify when something is ready? How do you know as somebody who's being approached with a project that this is, a re this is ready for me to take on as opposed to come back, you know, when you've got your, your ducks all in a row? Well, they're going to submit some material to you. I mean, some people are very cagey. They think we're going to steal their ideas and it's like, it's just when it's like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, ideas are so thick on the ground. I don't need to steal yours. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me on this. So, you know, so usually they'll share with me an outline or at least a synopsis. And, you know, you get to the point, I mean, that's one of the things that, it's one of the things that you learn going through an MFA program is to read like a writer. Yeah. So you're reading these outlines and you're reading these things and you, you get a better sense of like, I can see where the holes are here. I can see what, you know, I don't understand this character's motivation or how we get from here to here to here and, and what it is that, um, you know, how the story should work. We get a better sense of structure and character arc and, and 
setting. And so you, you, you get a better, you can read that stuff and go, mm, this, this isn't quite there yet. Yeah. And some, well, and sometimes you read it and you're like, oh, this isn't there yet, but I know what it needs. <laughs> right. Right. And that, and that can be kind of fun too. <laughs> That's, that can be dangerous as well. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> then, then you take the project and a, a month down the road, you're like, oh, what have I done? Why did I do this? Yeah, exactly. I, I did one project where the premise was the book started out in San Francisco. I live in Davis, California. I'm an hour and a half from San Francisco. And while I don't spend all my time there, I have been there. So it was like, oh, setting, great. I got it. And then it was about um, artwork. It was about um, some, and I, I have a bachelor's degree in art history. So I was like, this is my book to write. <laughs> but then I got into it and then the characters left and they go to India and I have never oh, been gosh. to India. And it feels like such a specific place. And it got very tricky and hard from there. <laughs> That's That brings up another question I wanted to ask actually, which is um, what what about research? I mean, because you know, when you're writing your own book, um, I feel like, you know, the research that it demands is is somehow easier than when you're when you're ghostwriting something and you are kind of compelled by the plot or whatever to do research into something they might not actually care all that much about or be all that interested in. So so how is that something you would judge early on or as early on as possible in, in your decision whether or not to take a project on? Well, I do like prefer things, especially with setting. I, you know, for me, it's so it's so important for the character to be physically grounded in the reality of the setting. For me, you know, I want them to, you know, walk out the door and smell things and feel things and hear things. And um, so I, I have kind of shied away from projects that take place in places that I've never been. Right. Um, Although I did have one recently where they said, when we were, you know, I, I sent them something and they, you know, we were talking about how we were going to go forward and they're like, stop making it so specific to this place. And I'm like, but you've said it in this place. <laughs> <laughs> but they wanted um, actually kind of a more generic feel to it. And I'm not really sure. It w it's one of those things that I didn't particularly agree on agree right. with, but but I've, you know, you kind of suck it up and do it anyway. Right. I mean, that's the perspective of a non-writer, right? You know, I want to, I want to make it generic so that more people can relate to it. But that's not no, how, no, no, that's, no, not no. how <laughs> that's not how, that's not how fiction works. <laughs> make it super specific so we can feel it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there's another terrific question here. How is a new writer and aspiring ghostwriter do you recommend that people build their skill sets to become stronger? Do you recommend editing gigs, teaching gigs, etc.? You know, the short answer to that is, of course, yes to everything. <laughs> but you know, we were talking earlier about um, writing short stories, and one of the things that I enjoyed when I was getting my MFA was. I hadn't written many short stories before, so I kind of was getting into it, but it's it's a really great place to experiment. Um, 
it's a great place to try things on because you're not committed to, you know, 80,000 words. You're usually held to somewhere around 5,000 words. And uh, so, I, you know, I wrote something in second person. I, you know, unreliable narrators, uh, teen stuff, middle grade stuff. It, um, and I feel like I built a lot of skills that way by trying on those different things. And it was, you know, less of a commitment than a whole novel. So I, I really recommend that a lot. I will also chime in and say that uh, 25 years ago, I did not know grammar, punctuation, spelling. And so I got a job teaching those things at the community <laughs> college <laughs> and I stayed a chapter ahead in the idiot's guide to grammar and style and I learned I learned <laughs> yeah but you know what that's all that's all our professional writer needs is the idiot's guide to grammar and, and style honestly <laughs> um so this is a good question from Danny. She sa she says, it, you know, as a ghostwriter, I'm going to kind of paraphrase the question. How do you apply for another ghostwriting job? I mean, it's not like you can show the the previous ghostwriting <laughs> work that you did to demonstrate your 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 you know your bona fides, right? Or or can you? Well, you know what happens like so like on the websites like Upwork or Readsy is even if they don't know exactly the, who the person is, you your client rates you and says, they mm -hmm. did a great job, this worked out really well, or it didn't work out well, however that goes. So, I mean, that's, that's there's a couple beauties to working through that website is things like that. I don't have to worry quite, like, can I get a recommendation from you? Or will you write something that says I did a good job? It kind of happens automatically. The other thing is, of course, that the payment thing happens automatically too. I don't have to bill anyone or yell right. at them if they're behind or something. Um, we're kind of drawing to the end. So we have just a few more questions. This has been a fantastic uh, wireside. I want to thank uh, Eileen and, and Melissa for, for this. It's just been great. It's been um, really fun. <laughs> Eileen, how, how do you, what are, what are some tricks and tips that you can give us for outlining? How do you outline a book in an effective way? And I, and I mean, you're writing under pseudonyms for various publishing houses where you've got to produce a book in a relatively short amount of time. You don't have time really to wait for inspiration to strike necessarily. So what are your tricks for, for making like a, a workable outline? I love craft books and I'll bounce around between them and different ones work out different and different well or not well at different times for me. Um, but I will deep dive into um, Alexander Sokoloff's um, books. She has some great craft books. Um, uh, the Hero's Journey, John Truby's story. A lot of them I found really helpful. Just even if it's not that I'm trying to take that, like, I don't want to call it a formula, but, you know, taking their, their stages that they're putting at putting out in a story and uh, translating them exactly, it just, you start thinking about that structure. You start thinking about how that story is rolling one thing after another. And that's very helpful to me. Yeah. Um, I used to do everything on a, one of those great big, you know, those science fair display boards. 
<laughs> I used to do everything on those with different colored post-it notes and stuff. Wow. So mm -hmm. I would be, you know, sort of brainstorming the story out and I'd be like, oh, this feels like a first act thing. So I'm going to put it over on this left side. It's a third act thing over here, second act, somewhere in the big giant right. middle. <laughs> and uh, I would end up with like all these different things that had to have happen, had to happen and slowly, but surely they would get sort of focused and put into more of a chronological linear. linear right. That's like, that's like relying upon your unconscious or, or your, your sort of pattern imposing faculties, right? And I mean, that's a big part of what, what, uh, what writers do, I think, is they detect patterns. That's how we find meaning in things is yeah. looking for patterns. Yeah. What are you, what, I'm oh, sorry. No, Melissa, please go ahead. Oh yes, uh, somebody asks if you found Scrivener helpful. I love Scrivener. I am a oh. huge Scrivener fan. Really? Um, yes, it has replaced my science fair display boards in a lot of ways. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can do that same kind of thing. You can put those buckets in and say, okay, here are some scenes that need to happen. And I think they're first act things. And you can just have a quick, and you have a quick little card and you can look at it as the cork board or you can look at it as an outline. And I found it tremendously helpful because it's actually very difficult to take those science fair display boards with you to places <laughs> right <laughs> except to the science fair maybe yeah. even there well no because the, the post-its lose their stickiness after a while and then, you, <laughs> then you've got problems <laughs> but yeah i love scrivener it, i love the ability to move those scenes around that way um i i love having a place where i can keep research and character names and place descriptions and names. It's been really helpful to me. Um, and with that, I think we're going to close out for the for the night. I want to call everyone's attention to uh, Melissa is doing a live Twitter chat uh, oh, as soon as we finish tonight. here. Yeah, I'm just lurking tonight. Oh, you're but just it's lurking. Super, OK, it's really useful. Yeah. So um, that's just do the just search for that. Um, for that uh, ha uh, hashtag MG book chat in, uh, in Twitter. Um, and with that, I want to thank again, Melissa and our guest Eileen for joining us tonight. And thank you everyone for uh, coming and joining us as well. And thank we'll you, see Eileen. you. See, we'll thank see you next you. time. It's been great. <laughs>